Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible. We're going to be in page 980. Those are the black Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, You're welcome to take that home if you like, as long as you read it. Philippians chapter 1. I'll read aloud. You follow along with me. The Apostle Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Amen. In last week's sermon, we saw that God uses and even sovereignly ordains the suffering of persecution in order to advance the gospel. Suffering and persecution is not outside of God's sovereign control. It's not something that he failed to take account of, and now he's trying to have to wrangle in so that he can advance the gospel. Oh, I didn't consider that this king, this governor, this council, this person, this business would oppose my son Jesus and his agenda. No, he ordains it. You, you saw that last week primarily in verse 12. Look there with me. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me, and that is his persecution, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So if you're thinking, oh, persecution can't advance the gospel, Paul says you're thinking wrong. In this morning's sermon, we're going to see that God is not only sovereign over affliction that comes from outside of the church, but he's also sovereign over affliction that comes from within the church. This morning's sermon is about two things, the human heart and the will of God. Now, if you read this morning's text, you will not find the word heart. We just read it, verses 15 to 18, the word heart is not there. So you may be wondering why I would say that this morning's sermon, which is about this text, is about the human heart. Sean, I don't see the word there. Where are you getting this from? But look at verses 15 and 16 again with me. Paul, he's talking about these, these people who preach Christ, some from good motives, some from bad motives. And, and that word from is what I want to draw your attention to in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from. That is, their preaching flows up and out of somewhere. Where is it flowing up and out of? It's flowing up and out of their heart. And so there are two different kinds of preachers with two different kinds of hearts. One has an envious heart, a heart that's leading to rivalry, and one has a heart that's full of love and good intentions. So what I want us to see here is that both good and bad gospel ministries flow out of the heart. In a sense, Paul is just telling us what Jesus and the rest of the Bible have already been telling us all along, namely, that what we say and do always flows up out of our heart. People who say things like, oh, I know that I said this or that I did that, but if you only really knew me, you would know that I actually have a good heart. They fail to understand what Jesus has been saying this whole time, which is like, no, you said that bad thing because it came up out of the bad place in you. You, If I dug deep down and I found something else in you that was at a base level good, I would never see this bad thing flowing up out of you. If our heart is corrupt, our words will be corrupt, our works will be corrupt, our ministry will be corrupt. If our heart is pure, our words will be pure, our works will be pure, and our ministries will be faithful. And if you're you're sitting there thinking, well, Sean, I'm not a pastor. Okay, that's fine for you. Remember, ministry is not a word that we only use for professional 
gospel people, pastors, missionaries. We all have a ministry. So right at the outset of the sermon, don't think that this doesn't apply to you. If you belong to Christ, you have a ministry. And your ministry will flow up out of your heart. Will it be pure or will it be corrupt? I have four points for you this morning. Point number one, the corrupt heart. Point number two, the pure heart. Point number three, Paul's heart. And point number four, your heart. Let me pray and ask for help, and then we'll dive in. Father God, uh, no one in this room has a perfectly pure heart. But your Son has given us a new heart by the power of his Holy Spirit. And though we still live in this body of death, we know that you are renewing us day by day. And we pray that you'll use your word right now to help move us along the the path of sanctification make us more like your son Jesus so that our ministries can bear more fruit to the glory of your name and we pray this in the mighty name and the glorious name of Jesus Christ point number one the corrupt heart Paul is suffering in chains And what he's telling us as we dive into these verses is that his suffering is being made worse by ministers of the gospel who seek to afflict him in his chains. Now, how are they trying to seek him? Excuse me. How are they seeking to afflict him? Are they seeking to afflict him with slander and gossip? No. Are are they seeking to, to afflict him with violence? No. What Paul says is that they are seeking to afflict him in their gospel ministries with the preaching of the word. This is astounding. It's something we should pause to meditate on before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of this point. We really need to focus on the reality of how clever and fiendish and wicked our adversary is. I want us to see the way Satan operates. He weaponizes the preaching of the gospel against ministers of the gospel. He uses God's word against the workers of God. And listen, this is nothing new. This is just another iteration of what we see all the way throughout Scripture. This is the sort of classic strategy of Satan. If you were to go to like a college class, you know, how to try to disrupt the church and destroy God's children as taught by Professor Satan, right? Like right, 101, it would be like step number one, take the word of God and try to use it against the people of God, right? He tried it in the temptation event with Adam in the garden. Did God really say, oh, God didn't say that. Here, listen to me, right? And then he did it in the temptation event with the second Adam in the desert, Right? Trying to deceive Jesus with God's word. He does it here with Paul. He's been doing it for 2,000 years of church history. He's still doing it today. This is his strategy, and it's not checkers. It's chess. Uh, I can't really elaborate on this for another 45 minutes like I'd like to, but if you haven't yet read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters... I would highly recommend that you do so. In that book, he just reflects at length uh, very well about how clever Satan is in the ways that he tries to undermine the gospel and destroy the church. If you'd like a copy of of it, I'd be happy to uh, give it to you. Now, if you never read it, that's also fine because you you don't really need to see it there because you see it right here. In the text, we don't get this idea from C.S. Lewis and then map it onto the Bible. C.S. Lewis got that idea from the Bible. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so let's talk about these corrupt preachers. Who are they? We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. If you read some of the commentaries, they kind of, you know how, you want to figure out the answer to every question, right? And they try to piece together some evidence. Maybe it's these people, maybe it's these people. I'm not really convinced by any of their guesses, and I I have to tell you, I think the Lord withholds the identity of these preachers on purpose. I think if we knew who they were, we might be tempted to focus more on them in the particular rather than to focus on the principle 
So we may not know who these preachers are, but we do know how they operate, which is really the most important thing. What we know is that somehow, some way, according to Paul, their preaching is aimed at afflicting Paul. Look it. Some preachers indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. They want to afflict Paul with their preaching. Why? Because they are envious of him. Now, the word envy is a word that has sort of fallen on hard times in the American English lexicon. We don't use that word very much. Uh, It's often thought of as being similar to the word jealousy, and it is similar, but there is a difference. Jealousy is more about feeling threatened that you're going to take that which I already possess. I see a man talking to my wife, getting a little too cozy and comfortable, right? That righteous feeling of jealousy is, that's mine, you're coming to take what's mine, okay? Envy is more similar to the concept of coveting, right? Coveting refers to our desire to have that which others possess. So as Amber and I drive down this road uh, uh, in our neighborhood, it's like in the nicer port, like if it's on a spectrum, we're like going towards the projects. There's this nicer side of our neighborhood. And as we drive down this one street, we always look to the left and we go, oh, there's our house, this big, nice amazing. It's our dream house. We go, oh, there's our house. Okay, that's coveting, okay? (laughs) Now, envy is coveting and then some. It's not just, oh, I wish I had that. It's, oh, I wish I had that, and I don't want you to have that. I'm bitter that you have that. Aristotle says that envy is pain at the sight of another's good fortune. Thomas Aquinas says that envy is sorrow over another's good. Augustine says that envy is dissatisfaction with our place in God's order of creation, manifested in begrudging his gifts to others. Jonathan Edwards says that envy is a spirit of opposition to the happiness of others compared with our own. So envy, simply put, is an inordinate desire to have that which someone else possesses, which manifests itself in hostility. Let me give you two real-life examples. These are not like thought experiments. These are real-life examples. A woman who struggles with body issues, you know, uh, I don't look like the women in the magazines. The clothes don't ever fit me the way that, you know, my skinny friends, their clothes fit them. I never, right, that's th- that sort of thing. There's a woman who struggles with body image issues who slowly begins to develop feelings of bitterness and hostility towards her sister, who she perceives to have quite effortlessly the perfect figure. Or consider a man who finds himself hating a co-worker because this co-worker has been new to the job, has quickly excelled, found favor in the boss's eyes, has become quick friends with everyone else around the water cooler, climbing the ladder easier and faster than expected. The examples could be multiplied, right? You can envy someone else's property, position, personal relationships, talent, treasure, career, freedom, family, living room arrangement, right? There's really no limit to the petty feelings of envy that can boil up in the cauldron of our sinful human hearts. It's what we do when we say, not only I want what you have, but then we start to say, I hate you for having it. And sometimes we never say that in our minds, but it's what happens in our hearts. So uh, if envy is a fruit, then uh, it has to be, there has to be a root, right? So the the root of, of the sin of envy, the deeper sin, is idolatry, right? It's what happens when we worship the creation rather than the creator, the the gift rather than the giver, right? When we want God's stuff more than we want God, we tend to grow discontent with what God has very kindly, graciously, generously provided to us. And then we begin to look at what he's given someone else and we become envious of it. Rather than praising God and saying, God, I don't deserve anything but hell and wrath and death. And the fact that you've given me any good thing is something that I should praise your name for forever. We go, God, 
Why haven't you given me what that person's given me? And so we not only begin to develop a rivalry with our neighbor, but we begin to develop a rivalry with God. Moreover, envy robs us of community and joy because what we should do in a community together is rejoice together with every good thing that we have received. But when my heart is full of envy and I see you receive something good, I go, how dare you? I can't celebrate with you. I can't rejoice with you. Congratulations on the new baby. I don't have a baby. You do have a new baby. I want a baby. I should rejoice with you in that, but I can't because my heart is full of envy. Congratulations on the promotion. Congratulations on the relationship. Congratulations on the raise. Congratulations on putting that sin to death. You can't do it. You'll notice that I keep pairing envy with rivalry. I say that rivalry is a natural outflowing of envy, and you see that right here in this morning's text, right? Paul says that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. The first case of envy leading to rivalry in human history is the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, listen to the language of this verse. Cain, the older brother, killed Abel out of envy because God looked with favor favor on Abel's sacrifice but did not accept Cain's offering. God is happy with you. Rather than me being happy with you about God being happy with you, I now hate you to the point that I want to kill you. Envy leading to rivalry. As the story of humanity continues to unfold, we see this same, this same trajectory, the envy leading to rivalry. We see it destroying many more lives. Just as we walk through the book of Genesis, you see Esau envied his brother Jacob because of the blessing that his father had given him. Rachel envied her sister because Leah gave birth to Jacob's sons while Rachel remained childless. That's in Genesis 30. Saul moving outside of the book of Genesis, envied David for his success in battle and his popularity amongst the people. That's in 1 Samuel 15. Moving into the New Testament, the Jewish leaders had Jesus arrested because they were, quote, seized with envy. That's in Mark 15. So from the very first days of the fall to our present fallen days, the sin of envy wreaks havoc on humanity. Jesus says it like this. For from within, out of the heart, you see that? It's the same thing, from, from, where Jesus says this is coming from the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy. The Apostle Paul comes along and echoes Jesus' teaching in his own ministry, and he says that there are fruits of the Spirit, and then there are fruits of the flesh. Here is a list of the fruits of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. The book of Proverbs warns us. It says, if you're a wise man, you will stay away from envy. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy makes the bones rot. Now when it talks about making the bones rot, it's obviously not speaking literally. What it's saying is that envy will tear down who you are in your inmost being. And and I think this proverb points, points to the ultimate destruction, the destruction of our souls if we give into it. Earlier when Paul was listing out all those fruits of the flesh and he included envy... He says this after he finishes the list. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is not a little thing. It is such a big thing that it will keep you out of God's kingdom if by God's grace you do not put it to death. If you've never just considered the sin of envy in your life consider it God's providential smiling on you this morning that he has brought you here to sort of poke you in the envy 
I would just love for anyone here to, to just come up to me afterwards and say, Sean, I really just don't think I struggle with that. I would just say, okay, maybe you don't struggle with it in any of the areas that I've listed, but I guarantee you there's an area of your life that you do because you're a human and you're a sinner. We all struggle with this. Listen, you're kind of like set up to fall harder for this sin than a lot of other people because of the fact that you're an American. You live in America. It's the richest, most prosperous country in the history of the world, and because of that, it's got its whole unique range of like cultural sins right you we live in the land of keeping up with the joneses right so whatever it is in our sinful hearts that causes us to envy it's only exacerbated it's made worse by things like social media right every time you're on instagram every time you're on facebook every time you're on twitter you see someone with something and you're like man i wish i had that It's made worse by social media, by consumer culture, by our comfortable living, by our riches. Everything that's just part of our everyday lives in this decadent society in which we live. So friends, do not resist this call to self-examination that the Lord is offering you this morning. Don't say, I don't struggle with that, but I'm glad I heard this sermon because I have someone that I'm going to share it with. Seriously examine your own heart, your own mind, your own life to see if perhaps in some area of your life you have been given over to envy. And then ask yourself, what do you have to do to put that to death? Sometimes the easiest thing is the, is the most difficult. It's the most awkward. Maybe you've been envying another church member and it's been affecting the way you've been relating to them. And maybe you haven't been able to even put your finger on exactly why I feel this way towards you. Why, do, why, why have I not wanted to talk to them very much? Why have I been avoiding them? Why have I been feeling a low-grade hostility in my heart towards this brother or sister in Christ? It could be that you've been harboring envy against them. And if you have, one of the best ways to deal with that is to go up to them and say, Brother, sister, I don't know what's going on, but I think I've been envying you. And just talk about it and put it in the air and let the gospel light of of communion in the local church come to bear on that and put it to death. Yeah, it's awkward. No way around that. But you can have like a 10-minute awkward conversation that will almost certainly have a really good, useful, God-glorifying resolution. Or you can persist in a a longer, low-grade awkwardness, which will perhaps also escalate into something much worse in the life of our church. So, let me just say it like this. To paraphrase one pastor, either be killing envy or envy will be killing you. Now, let's go back to the context of these verses. Let's, let's take that whole like biblical understanding of envy and let's bring it back to what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that this envy is being paired with the preaching of the gospel. Isn't that weird? How does that work? Like, how exactly does that work? How, how, how would envy cause one preacher to, to preach the gospel in order to afflict another preacher? I'm, I'm not really sure. Paul doesn't tell us. I don't understand the mechanics of it all. Sin can be confusing like that sometime, sometimes. But... Here's, here's one possible scenario, okay? It's possible that as Paul is going around and doing his ministry, the person who's observing him is not seeing any of his struggles or is choosing to ignore many of his struggles and is only seeing his ministry successes. He goes here, a church is planted. He goes there, a church is planted. He goes over here, a whole synagogue converts to the one true faith of Jesus Christ. And they begin to want the ministerial success that Paul has for themselves. And so now when they go out and preach the gospel, they're not doing it to try to glorify God and edify the saints and call lost people to salvation. They're doing it to try to get more converts than Paul. Thinking, if I can get more, oh, if I can get more churches, if I can rack up more notches in my belt, that'll really show him who's boss. That'll really show him who's blessed. That'll show him whose ministry is really the best. That's just one possibility. But here's the thing. Even if we don't know the exact ins and outs of how this played out in Paul's life, I think we can learn one really important thing here. 
There are people who, A, preach a good gospel with a bad heart, and B, people who preach a bad gospel with a good heart. So let's just look at each of those in turn. There's, there's something paradoxical about the gospel. On, on the one hand, it's so rich and complex that we're going to spend the rest of eternity sort of mining the depths of the mystery of the gospel. That's what we're going to spend all of our time in heaven doing, and we're going to love it. On the other hand, the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. You know, you can just sort of diagram it on a whiteboard, you know. Sinner, holy, cross is a bridge. You've probably seen that before, right? And a child can grasp it. My, my point is, is that any bad actor can understand and preach the one true gospel. It's not like trying to rap. I couldn't just show up at a university and preach theoretical physics, right? Somebody would say, tell us about quarks. And I'd be like, I'm super quirky. I'll tell you more. Just hang in. No? Okay. But anyone can understand the gospel. You're a sinner. God is holy. Christ came to fix that and bring us back together again, right? So what that means is that bad actors not only can, but do preach the gospel for all kinds of carnal and dishonorable reasons. So in this morning's text, we see one example. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that there are some who peddle the gospel. That is, they sell it for their own personal gain. Jude talks about those who, who creep into the church and pervert the gospel for sensuality's sake. But here's the thing. The way that they made it into the church was by preaching the true gospel. That's how they earned their trust. Then they started perverting the gospel, right? So here's my point. Don't be naive. Don't just assume that because someone is preaching the true gospel, that they are true to the gospel. Do you see the difference? Don't assume that just because someone's words are correct, that their hearts are pure. Now, the inverse is also true. You can certainly preach a, a false gospel with a pure heart. Let me just tell you two little quick stories. I was a brand new Christian. I was out evangelizing all the time. I, I was preaching the prosperity gospel. I had no idea what I was doing. Nobody ever sat me down and corrected me. And so I was out really sincerely desiring to serve the Lord, to preach, to lead people to salvation, and I was preaching a false gospel. I remember this one time I was in uh, the break room at work, and um, I had been trying to evangelize my coworker, and we got to a conversation on the Trinity, you know? And I said, uh, I said, it's real simple. You know, the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Father. Now, that's heresy, okay? I, but I thought I was helping. My heart was to lead him to a knowledge of the one true God. My point is that sometimes... The content of the heart and the content of the words can be diametrically opposed. We're going to talk more about that later, but I just want you to have that as a category. Point number two, the pure heart. The pure heart. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, Sean, that was a really long point number one. You're right, but it was the longest point of the sermon, so rest easy, all right? Point number two, the pure heart. <clears throat> so, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Paul says there that love does not envy. Love does not envy. Isn't that an interesting contrast? It's the same contrast from this morning's text. Paul says that some preach Christ out of envy, but others preach Christ out of love. In verse 9... Of chapter 1, Paul prayed that the Philippians would, would grow in both love and knowledge. And here in verse 16, we see that some gospel ministers are doing just that. They love the right things because they've grown in their knowledge. Look at verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Do, do you see that? Knowing knowing they know that I was put here to defend the gospel. The main thing I want us to see here is that a right understanding of God's sovereignty in suffering, 
That's what Paul's talking about. I've been put here. Where? In chains. I've been imprisoned. I've been afflicted. I've been persecuted for a purpose. A right understanding of God's sovereignty over our suffering, an accurate knowledge of how these two things go together, it causes an increase in love and gospel faithfulness. To misunderstand how God's sovereignty and our suffering go together causes a decrease in love and a decrease in gospel faithfulness. Now listen, I, I get it. This is kind of conceptual. It's a little difficult to sort of like wrap your minds around. I, I deleted like three paragraphs in my manuscript trying to explain this conceptually. Because I think maybe it's, it's easier to just sort of understand this by feeling what Paul is saying. So in an effort to do that, um, consider, this, consider this scenario. Let's say that you go to a Voice of the Martyrs conference. Okay, Voice of the Martyrs is a ministry dedicated to highlighting persecution amongst Christians all over the world, okay? Educating the church in persecution. So let's say that in Atlanta, Georgia, you hear there's a Voice of the Martyrs conference, and you and a bunch of brothers and sisters from the church, you drive down together, you go to the conference, you want to serve and love and pray for the persecuted church. Now, while you're at this conference, you hear the testimony of their keynote speaker who spent 20 years, 20 years, in a concentration camp in North Korea. He was the pastor of a small house church in Pyongyang, the the capital of the hermit kingdom, and he was arrested. He spent 20 years in the concentration camp, and he's standing there at the podium, and he's, he's telling you his story. He's telling you about his arrest in the middle of the night. He's telling you about his torture, which lasted months on end. He's telling you about the public humiliation and And he just goes on and on and on, the immense suffering in North Korea, what he went through, three generations of his family put into this concentration camp for the sake of the gospel. And then when he gets done, when your heartstrings cannot be wound up anymore, he finishes by saying this, and he looks you right in the eye and he says, I want you to know, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I know that I was put here to defend and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that do to you? What does that knowledge of how God's sovereignty and his suffering, what does that create in you in your heart? Doesn't it it create a feeling of love for that brother in your heart? Doesn't it increase your love for God? Doesn't it increase your belief in the power and the veracity of the gospel? Doesn't it motivate you to just go out and preach the gospel to anyone who's willing to listen and then to people who aren't willing to listen? When I get thinking about, I just want to go rip a telephone pole out of the ground and just, you know, let's go. That's what this does. Paul is saying that his suffering in chains and their right understanding of it in these preachers who preach out of good motives, that's what it did in their heart. They said, As they looked at Paul's suffering, they said, man, I love Paul. And watching him suffer for the sake of the gospel like this has motivated me to go further, to press harder. In point number one, I recommended C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. In point two, I'd like to make a a more broad, general reading suggestion. Uh, I think any Christian who struggles with apathy, so that's all of us, any Christian who ever feels like they downregulate in their motivation for the mission of God, you should, you should regularly be reading good Christian biographies, particularly biographies about missionaries and others throughout church history who have suffered, because it, it creates this in us. It, it brings us into the world of their suffering, and it motivates us to be like them and to follow hard after Christ. One good example of how you can do this is John Piper's a collection of biographies, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And it's like this thick, but you just read like one a week or maybe even one a day. Now, if you're sitting there going, yeah, well, Sean, I'm just not going to read. Oh, good news. Desiring God has them all. They're all just sermons that he preached at his national conferences. He did it, boom, 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 21 years. So you can just go listen to one a week. I'd encourage you to start with uh, the sermon on Adoniram Judson. It's a weird name. You should be able to find it. Adoniram Judson. Point number three. Paul's heart.
Right now, in our city, there are many pastors who will preach a good gospel with a bad heart. Their from is not good. They're going to get up in pulpits. It's Easter Sunday. That means whatever bad intentions they might have had, it's only going to be worse. And they're going to get up and they're going to preach the gospel from some bad motive. It may not be envy. It may be something else. It may be, it may be pride. Who knows what it may be. But it may be something else. How should we feel about that reality? What, what should that cause us to feel knowing that people will preach the true gospel from bad motives? Look at verse 18. Paul says, what then? Which is kind of what I'm saying. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This is what Paul says. He says, even if their hearts are bad, if their word is true, I can still rejoice. Paul knows that God is sovereign over the human heart. So even though these envious preachers are preaching from bad motives, God uses their evil motives to do good things. That's really good news. It would be really bad news if I stood up to you today, before you today, and I said, you know, the gospel can only advance as long as the hearts of those who proclaim it, as long as their hearts are really pure. That'd be really bad news. But Paul says the good news is that even if their hearts are bad, if their words are true, God will use their evil intentions. Now, to be clear, Paul would rather, I would rather, you should rather, that everyone who preaches the gospel does so for the right reasons. Paul is not saying, I rejoice because this is the ultimate good. He's saying, I rejoice because God uses even this bad to create good. We should note, of course, that this idea of God using the wicked and evil thoughts and intentions of the human heart for his good purposes is not novel. It's not unique to Paul. He didn't conjure up this theology. This is why we read the story of Joseph this morning. Joseph was one of 12 sons of Israel. His father loved him dearly. He gave him the famous colorful robe. He received visions from the Lord. His brothers envied him, which produced a rivalry. Genesis 37 describes like this, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So you know how the story goes. Joseph's brothers eventually sold him into slavery. He suffered greatly. Eventually the Lord, through his suffering, raised him up to a position of power and prominence in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then one day a famine arose in the land. His brothers, because of this famine, showed up at his doorstep. They collapsed in repentance, begging for forgiveness. You know, at first they didn't recognize Joseph. I'm skipping that whole, I'm fast forwarding through that. Joseph forgave them. But when he forgave them, he gave them a rationalization for his forgiveness. This is his rationalization. As for you, you meant evil against me. Your heart that's what your heart wanted. Your heart was wicked. You wanted to hurt me. That's your evil desires. That's what you wanted. But God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Your heart wanted one thing. God sovereignly imposed his will in your heart to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In the end, Joseph rejoiced because God sovereignly used the evil intentions in the hearts of his brothers to produce good. In the same way, Paul rejoices because God sovereignly used the evil hearts of these gospel preachers to produce gospel good. Now, before moving on to point four, I need to make one very important clarification because some people have used these verses to say that we should be charitable towards false prophets, towards wolves, towards false teachers in the church. They would say 
that we should rejoice, we should still somehow, some way, find a way to celebrate with false teachers. To, 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 it's okay for false teachers to say the false things that they're saying. Friends, that is not at all what Paul is saying here. In verse 18, he says, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. He means the one true Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, the gospel as it really is in relation to Christ. Paul would never rejoice that a false Christ is being preached. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about false teachers who come and preach a different Jesus than the one we proclaimed. So there is a true Jesus and a false Jesus. If people have bad intentions and they preach a true Jesus, Paul says, okay, I can still rejoice. But if they preach a false Jesus, there is no rejoicing. Right? So the Roman Catholic works-based Jesus, you have to do this in order to get that. He's not going to rejoice with that. The prosperity gospel Jesus, not going to rejoice with that. The all too often American patriotic gospel Jesus, God's not going to rejoice with that. Paul will not rejoice with that. We should not rejoice with that. Whenever a false gospel is being preached, there is no rejoicing. There is only a curse. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The situation in Galatia is that false teachers have crept into the church. A false gospel is working its way into the church there. So Paul, he doesn't waste any time with pleasantries at the beginning of the letter. Love you, miss you. No, he gets straight to the point. This is what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, a different Jesus. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want you to think of Jesus in a different way. But if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, and repetition is important. It's meant to drive the point home. If anyone is preaching to you a different gospel, a contrary gospel, a contrary Jesus to the one that you received, let him be accursed. This is not the language of rejoicing. Why? You see, friends, the Bible says that our sin puts us under a curse. It's the curse of sin and death. When we rebel against God, when we break his holy law, we can expect to receive no blessings from his hand, but only curses. Not curses that he's putting on us because he's mean to us. Curses that we have chosen for ourselves in our willful rebellion. So we're under this curse God is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. We're sinners. We're on a collision course with a holy and righteous God, and we will be destroyed forever in hell because of this reality. But God has made a way in his son Jesus. Because he loves us so much, he has made a way for us to come out from under this curse so that we might forever receive his blessing. Listen to what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see? The great exchange. We deserve the curse. Jesus gets the curse. Jesus deserves all the rich blessings of obedience and righteousness. We get it because of his work on the cross. And so Paul says, I cannot rejoice in any way that someone would preach a false gospel. Because when someone's preaching a false gospel, they're acting like an antichrist. Christ came to remove us from under the curse. A false gospel keeps us under the curse. He cannot rejoice under that. He says, as a matter of fact, anyone who would try to keep you under the curse is themselves cursed. Let them be accursed. 
So do not rejoice ever over the ministries of Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar or Rob Bell or Shane Claiborne or T.D. Jakes or Bill Johnson or Pat Robertson or Richard Rohr or Matthew Vines or Todd White or Paula White or insert name of false teacher. The only proper response to their, their ministry should be to weep that they are under a curse and that they are trying to keep every one of their hearers under a curse. Point number four, your heart. So here in point four, I'm going to make one really obvious application. And then I'm going to try to sneak in like three other applications that I just couldn't find anywhere else to put in the sermon. Hope that's okay. Application number one, serious joy. We've been using the word rejoice. Paul says he rejoices. And I'm worried that the word rejoice doesn't really hit us the way that it should. The, the weight of this word doesn't really land on us like it should. Paul does not say that he has sort of just accepted things for the way that they are. Right? He doesn't say that he's, he's really wrestled with it, but he's come to terms with the reality that some people are going to preach the true gospel from bad motives. No, he says that he rejoices. And this word rejoice means that he is so full of joy that it overflows. It spills the banks of his heart and then comes up out of his life in worship. Here's the application. We have got to learn to rejoice like Paul rejoices. Paul is being attacked People are trying to harm him. The word afflict that Paul uses here, it means to cause grievous harm. That's what these false preachers are trying to do to Paul. And yet he rejoices. Why? Because his joy is not attached to his circumstances. It's not like, oh, these people don't like me. They want to do me harm. Now I'm sad. No, his joy is attached to the gospel. So if the gospel is going out... Paul's going to be rejoicing. Would he be rejoicing more if they preach Christ from true and good motives? Of course. But he can still rejoice because the gospel is going out. He has on these gospel goggles. Every situation in his life that he looks at, he looks at through the lens of the gospel. Is the gospel going out? Are people being saved? Is the church being built up into the image of Christ? Is God being glorified in his son, Jesus? If the answer to that is yes, then Paul rejoices. And we have to start thinking like that too. Even if things are going really bad in my life in any number of ways, even if I am suffering, what is happening with the gospel? Is the gospel being advanced through my suffering? If so, then... May I never have a pity party. May I find some way, somehow, to rejoice. Because the most important thing, the only thing that really matters, is happening. When you get to heaven, you're going to look back. Oh, I lost my job. Oh, I suffered this sickness. And it, oh, it means a lot now. I'm not trying to take away from your suffering. It, listen, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard. But in heaven, you're going to look back and you'll be like, that was nothing. And you're going to look at the suffering that you experienced. And then you're going to look at what God did in the gospel. And Paul literally says they cannot compare. One is a light momentary affliction. The other one is an eternal weight of glory. So even if we're suffering, if the gospel is going forward, we need to rejoice. And, and, and the inverse of that is even if we're prospering, if the gospel is not advancing through our prosperity, we need to weep. We need to repent. We need to stop and ask ourselves, where have I gone wrong in my life? While I'm here, let me just tell you that I told you at the very beginning of the sermon that this was going to be a sermon about the heart. And I hope you've seen that. Because what I'm talking about here is not outward obedience it's not behavior alignment. You cannot rejoice unless your heart is right. What I'm talking about is having your heartbeat in sync with God's 
heartbeat. God's heart is in sync with gospel advancement. That is what he is most passionate about. His son being glorified among the nations. That is what God loves. And so we will rejoice when we begin to love what God loves, even in the midst of suffering. I hope you can see now why we call Philippians the epistle of serious joy. Application point number two. Stay ready. In verse 16, Paul tells us that his entire ministry is viewed through the lens of defending the gospel. Just look there. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul says that all of his suffering is to defend the gospel. Now, you may be tempted to think, oh, well, he's an apostle. Of course he thinks like that. Remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon. You have a ministry, too. And wherever God has put you, he has put you there to defend the gospel. First Peter says it like this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So get your heart right. Right? Always start with the heart. Then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the Lord put Paul where he was to defend the gospel, and he has put us where we are to defend the gospel. So be prepared to do that. Application point number three, the motive police. The motive police. I want to be careful to shut a door that the sheep, as, as in this sermon, I'm sort of driving the sheep down a particular path, right? I want, to, I want to shut a door that some sheep may run, try to run through and escape the path that I'm trying to lead you down. I've got to close the gate. The gate is, I don't want you to start being the motive police. Now listen, Paul does say here, I mean, you can ascribe motive. He does it. He says, listen, I, I see clearly that there are two groups of people here. Some have good motives. Some have bad motives. That's a reality. If you're going to be any kind of useful counselor to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll have to, at some level, to some extent, try to discern people's motives. But you cannot get carried away with it because you're not God. There are two things that you should consider. Number one, the human heart. Number two, you're not God. Number one, the human heart. I don't know where this quote is from. Grant will probably tell me after. The human heart is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. Tell me now, Grant. You don't know it? Okay, all right. Or to say it like the prophet Jeremiah, right? It's deceitful. It's confusing. Add to that the fact that you're not God and you cannot see perfectly into people's hearts. If you start becoming obsessed with evaluating people's motives, you're going to end up hypercritical, hypersuspicious, totally uncharitable, and you are going to destroy a lot of relationships, right? Even when you're thinking about false teachers, don't try to analyze their heart. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell you to analyze the heart of a false teacher. Well, I think old Joel Osteen, you know, he's, he's, he's doing it from a good place in his heart. Well, nobody asked you that. He's preaching a false gospel. If someone breaks into my house at 2 a.m., if I hear and a window breaks and I see some guy in a ski mask crawling through my window, I'm not going to go, I wonder how his heart is. There's going to be a clicking sound, right? And I'm going to deal with the threat. That's how we address false teachers. They're breaking into the household of God. They're leading people to hell. Listen, if I get the guy in handcuffs and he's sitting there on the curb, then I'll try to minister to him, right? Same thing with false teachers. First, I need to address the threat. I need to protect the sheep, I need to protect the gospel, I need to address the glory of God, which is under attack. Finally, point number four, application point number four, the means and ends. Means (coughs) and ends. Look at verse 16 again. (coughs) Paul says, the latter do it out of love, Knowing that I am put here. Put here. That is in chains. Under house arrest. 
Who put Paul there? Was it the Jews who incited his arrest? Was it the Romans who executed his arrest? Paul says that he has been put here for the defense of the gospel. Do you think the Jews would put Paul in prison to defend the gospel? Do you think the Romans would put Paul in prison to defend the gospel? No. When Paul says, I have been put here to defend the gospel, he's saying that God put him there. God sovereignly placed him in chains. Did you, did you see the language that we read earlier from the Joseph story? Joseph, what did he keep saying? God sent me here before you. God sent me here before you. When you read the Joseph account, the, the narrator doesn't stop and say, now God sovereignly caused the hearts of his wicked brothers to sell him into slavery. It just says their hearts were wicked, they had envy, and therefore they sold him into slavery. But then later, Joseph looks back and he knows that God is sovereign even over these evil, wicked hearts. And he says, hey, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. Paul says, God put me in these chains. The reason why it's so important to, to, to show us this, this idea that God doesn't just appoint the gospel ends, right? What is the end? It's the conclusion, right? The de- that the gospel would be defended. He doesn't just sovereignly ordain that. He sovereignly ordains the means by which that is accomplished through our human will. Why is it so important that we understand this? Because at least three different places in the New Testament show us that this understanding is integral to our understanding of the atonement, the cross. Listen to Luke 22. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Their hearts were envious, their hearts were fearful, their hearts were proud, and therefore they strategized. How can I put Jesus to death? How can I kill him? Then we go to Acts chapter 2. The preaching at Pentecost. And the apostles say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, that's the eternal plan, and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So preaching to the audience, somehow, some way, God has predestined this, but listen to the language they use. You killed by the hands of lawless men. Then we come to Acts 4. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, speaking to God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even in the death of Jesus, to save the world from their sins, God sovereignly moved through the evil, wicked intentions of the heart. Friends, God may be doing that this very morning. Why are you here? Are you here because it's Easter? Well, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Are you here because you felt pressure from your family? Was it fear of man that drove you here? Was it a sense of religious guilt? That drove you here? Oh, I know I'm not doing right by God, but I at least got to get there on Easter and Christmas. Your heart may not be pure. The reason that brought you here this morning may not be a good reason. It may not be a pure reason. But here you are. And maybe you're here because God used the evil, wicked intentions of your heart to bring you to salvation to remind you of the gospel, to show you your great need of Jesus Christ. So don't resist. You can't resist his will anyways. So if he brought you here for that purpose, I pray that you will turn away from your sin, trust in Christ, and be resurrected with all the saints in glory. Let's pray. Father, your love your knowledge, your wisdom, 
It's so far above us. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. But we trust in what you have revealed. And we pray that you'll help us to believe it with all of our hearts. And that you'll help us to love you with everything that is in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.